Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, who needs a striker anyway? Pep Guardiola's Manchester City bring a great result back from Paris, while Chelsea take a slender lead into the second leg of the Champions League semi-final. We'll ask what's next for Jurgen Klopp as Champions League qualification fades, and what are the strangest reasons to miss a game of football? All that and more on today's episode of The Game. To help me through it all, Gregor Robertson and Jonathan Northcroft. And we're joined for a chat on the Champions League by the Times and the Sunday Times European football writer, Ian Hawkey. Guys, how are you doing? Good, Good. Hugh. How are you? Hi there, Hugh. Very well, very well. It's been a great week of football so far already. I'll be off in Manchester later on to watch us play against Roma. But we'll begin with the big elite tournament. Paris Saint-Germain 1, Manchester City 2. Pep Guardiola employing basically a double false nine as they came from behind in the second half to beat PSG. Ian, Pep might have, have won the game, but in in some ways, did he overthink it last night? He underthought it by his general overthinking standards, if you see what I mean. Um, I think, I think, I think, I think we're all getting a little bit tired of the Pep overthink ties theory. Um, so perhaps we need some some new prefixes for the way he thinks. So, so I think I think we'll go underthinking with this one. More important, possibly, was the sort of the the mind games beforehand when he was all about how calm they were going to be, how patient, and so on, and and, and they were, you know, they they a little like Real Madrid the night before that, you know, they had they they endured the the early ambush and 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 bided their time, knew they had the tools to to unpick a very good. PSG team and and voila, so they did. Do you think we saw something new with his tactics though? Because that is something that has always been levelled at him. He gets to these big games and he, he does change things slightly. Um, when the team news came out, no one was really sure which of those front five players would be playing where. It looks novel in in an orthodox sense. But but then again, I, I think if you ask, did, did Pep Guardiola pick his form 11? And, and the answer is probably yes, unless I'm I'm missing something. Um, perhaps Raheem Sterling would tell me I was missing something. But um, you know, these these are these are the players who have been doing very well for him in what has been an extraordinarily good run. So so why not? And you know, they they all paid off. I mean, uh, Mares was superb, wasn't he? Um, and obviously, Kevin De Bruyne is 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 absolutely golden at the moment. Uh, so, so in that sense, um, I mean, it, you asked at the beginning, uh, who needs a centre forward? Um, and this has been quite an interesting couple of days, hasn't it? I mean, Real Madrid very, very obviously need their superb centre forward. Although in his own way, Karim Benzema is not, is not an orthodox number nine either. Um, it, Pep knows that he's got goals in that front six, you know, you know, almost whichever combination he chooses. Um, so, I mean, whether or not it's confused, puzzled PSG, yeah, I mean, in the second half, they, they weren't picking people up, were they? And, uh, and, and they weren't building very good walls either. <laughs> um, Manchester City, I think they, they, they played very, very well. I'll come to this a little bit later on, but I wondered your view on it, Ian, whether they, they did leave something out there last night. Could they possibly have scored again had they had that striker? Well, I, I, actually, I suppose this is a good example. Um, if Phil Foden were a 30-year-old centre-forward, um, uh, you know, a, 
of the ability that Phil Foden is and all sorts of other things. Yes, of course they would have they would have scored more goals. So I, I, I guess in 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 the two Foden moments, maybe you could have said, ah, you know, but for a brilliant finisher, but for a vintage. Aguero or something in that position. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, if you go through the details, there will be some regrets, but it's a, it's a tremendous lead to take back when you're in such good form, isn't it? Kylian Mbappe was denied a single shot in the game. Do you think PSG will feel like they can go to Manchester and maybe score twice because it wasn't their best performance? Yes, and I mean, there's, and there's all sorts of things they can cling to. Some of them sort of vaguely superstitious. They... They're much better away than they are at home this season. Um, And, you know, there there may be some logic in terms of having an empty stadium in that. Um, So, uh, yes, you know, uh, they they scored four goals at uh, admittedly not very good Barcelona uh, in the last round. They scored three at Bayern Munich in the snow. So, yeah, you know, they can certainly score enough goals away from home um, in this competition. We know that. And, and it would be surprising if Mbappe has has another night as blank as as last night was. Um, great credit to Ruben Diaz, of course, for closing out Mbappe so effectively. Mm, fantastic performance. We'll chat about him a little bit later as well. Chelsea, let's talk about them. They got an away goal. It was a one-all draw against Real Madrid. I was surprised to see Zinedine Zidane play with wing-backs in the game. It left them pretty disjointed. Chelsea capitalised on that. Um, was there any excuse from Zidane afterwards as to why he felt he had to play like that? Not directly, but I, I mean, it, it, you know, he has a, a perfect alibi for that. It's it, it circumstances. They were missing two of what you would call their their back four, uh, Mondi at left back and obviously Sergio Ramos, um, uh, both of whom may be back for the second leg. And uh, I, I feel quite sad saying this. There is an issue with Marcelo now. Um, you know, a footballer who has provided us with so much joy for the best part of 15 years. Um, and, you know, he's not a very trustworthy left back. Uh, perhaps perhaps even in his peak, he was, you know, there was always a risk reward thing with Marcelo at, at left back. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think I think they they don't want to expose Marcelo at left back in a in a in a back four. And I'm afraid there's there's all sorts of evidence why they shouldn't um uh which is a terrible shame so I, I think i think that was that was partly to do with it and and i think Zidane was was also trying to to match tuchel um to match tuchel in mid, midfield and uh yeah I, I think that was the thinking behind it and, and to be honest i don't you know there isn't a great barrage of criticism for that that decision uh he's missing key players and um and that seemed the logical thing to do although Obviously, it wasn't the most effective way of thwarting Chelsea. We'll talk about it a little bit later on. But as you mentioned, Marcelo, we're asking the strangest reasons to miss a football match. Is he definitely going to miss the second leg? No, no, I don't think it's definite at all. Um, it's, uh, it, it, well, it's it's an interesting insight, isn't it? To one of the peculiarities of, of uh, Spanish society that, uh, you know, this is a public service obligation if you're, if you're a, a permanent resident or citizen to uh, help with um, electoral chores. Um, the thought did slightly occur after some of the difficulties Marcelo has had, which we've discussed about uh, operating a <laughs> left-back, whether actually the Spanish state had intervened um, for humane reasons. 
yeah, we'll see. We'll see if he does play and, and we'll get to the bottom as to, as to why he's been called up. Um, just finally, are you surprised by the impact that Thomas Tuchel's made at Chelsea? Um, 12 games unbeaten away from home at the moment. It seems like he's been there for several years when you see Chelsea play. Yes, I mean, I, 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 surprised in the sense that it really has been emphatic and quick. And, you know, he's he's he, he's, he's established a great clarity of ideas and, and obviously a great control. Um, we all know how, how talented he is and how meticulous he is and how... And, and and how how thoroughly he would have planned once he he knew he was was getting the job, um, but uh, yeah yeah I mean it's a, it's immensely impressive, isn't it? Um, and still, still you you would you you know you could list players who he hasn't got um, playing to their fullest potential. So you know that's that's encouraging. He's he's done so much so well so quickly that you imagine that you know the the kinks that still need to be ironed out, like, you know, the finishing of his his preferred striker, Timo Werner, um, will be ironed out. I'll ask the guys in a moment, but um, I wonder, do you envisage an all-English final? Yeah, I mean, that that is that is clearly the likeliest outcome now. Um, you know, you would trust Manchester City to, to hold that lead. Um, and I'm not sure if you would trust Real Madrid to be able to stir up all that that great traditional match-winning semi-final expertise that has been been their trademark over the last 10 years i just i, I don't think i don't think they've got quite the resources that they they had when they you know they reached those three successive finals and won them um and and you know i, I you know i, I don't think I don't think Chelsea look like a team who are going to fall apart, unless, of course, they play West Bromwich Albion. (laughs) (laughs) Ian Hawkey, pleasure as always. Thanks for joining us on the Game Podcast. Lots still to discuss uh, from those games in the Champions League. I wanted to highlight N'Golo Conte's performance in the heart of the midfield for Chelsea. He was absolutely incredible against Real Madrid. And I I still feel, and maybe this is a bit of a, a sort of commonly held belief that he's underappreciated N'Golo Kante, Jonathan. He's he's undervalued as well, I think, at times. Oh, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. I mean, I haven't watched him very closely for Leicester in, in 2015-16 in his first season. I've been, I suppose, in love with him as a player ever since. And you speak to the Leicester players from, from that era, <clears throat> you know, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you he's just, when you play against him in training, he almost a witchcraft type ability to just you know you'd be running with the ball and and suddenly you'd, you'd realize it wasn't at your feet and then Golo Kante was off with it somewhere just incredible power I think what's underrated is his incredible powers of football intelligence his timing his ability to be in the right position on the pitch um he's such a multifunctional player he can he can he knows when to run with the ball knows when to pass it um knows when to attack knows when to defend um kind of the ultimate team player. And that's before you talk about the, the energy, which I think is what most people concentrate on, which of course is is sensational. And it's no surprise that the players that that, that, that are functioning best under Tuchel are the ones with the highest tactical intelligence, like Mason Mount and and and, and like him. And uh, and and yes, it was um, you know it was that cliche about Kante. He was he was he was two players in in in, in that in that Champions League game. It was a stunning performance. A lot of his best work as well was was kind of springing attacks. It was he was um, you know playing in really tight spaces and then breaking free. 
they, he, he did that quite a lot, particularly in the in the in the first half. And you know, kind of combining with Aspilicueta, or sometimes the final pass wasn't quite there. But it was a lot of his play, a lot of his best play, I thought, was actually springing attacks for Chelsea, which is you know not necessarily the thing you you associate with Canty first and foremost. I thought he was brilliant at the heart of a Chelsea midfield. I thought Chelsea's performance was really good as well as we've spoken about already. At Manchester City had a very good performance as well. 18 away wins in a row now for them, Johnny. How good were they in your opinion? They were fabulous in the second half. Um, first half, particularly first 20, 25 minutes, it did look like we might see a, a, a familiar um, sight of City freezing at, at that stage of European competition. They seemed to be inhibited. Um, they, they, they just weren't going for it with their pressing. They, they, they weren't creating a lot. But I think the fact that they came through that and played so well in the second half does show the the evolution at last that's been a long time in coming for Guardiola City but I, I think it is there now I think they're over that mental hurdle certainly in the evidence of the last two ties um, and they were they were they were terrific they were terrific um, you know particularly particularly um, in, in 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 the in the forward press I thought in the second half they just absolutely suffocated PSG the PSG couldn't come out with the ball um, the group the ball possession was was great of course. Um, and I, I think it's me hard. I think it'd be very hard on that evidence for for PSG to to score by t- win by two clear goals against against City and Manchester. Ruben Diaz as well, another player we need to highlight. Uh, revelation of the season, do you think, Gregor? You're a defender by trade. How good is he? Yeah, he's awesome. Um, I think you know I've said before. Part of it is kind of is a uh, assuredness and the kind of presence he brings and the contrast City have had in the as well I think that's been huge in it and what that brings out in John Stones you know you look at who they were up against and how unflustered they looked all night I think that in the first half there was a couple of balls that were there were some really fine margins in this game a couple mm-hmm. of balls over the top that they were, you know, they were stretching headers there was one I remember Diaz kind of he almost had to head backwards to his goalkeeper in, in good faith um, that it would, it would end up in the goal, goalkeeper's hands so there were some really fine margins getting stretched in the first half but in the second half particularly they were com- so comfortable and you know as I, as I say again playing against Neymar and, and Mbappe and I would put John Stones into that too there wasn't a moment where you thought you know even those kind of there's occasionally even though John Stones is in good form a moment where he takes a risk or, or you go you know you're like oh hiding through <laughs> watching the game through fingers not one of not one of them so both of them were outstanding absolutely Ruben Diaz with a couple of interceptions the headers that you mentioned already very fine margins but that um, Kylian Mbappe was always trying to peel off John Stones and they were trying to hit a diagonal ball over John Stones' head. And he, he read it very well, but it was clear that that was something that PSG were targeting, although he coped very well with it. I almost felt that after a while it was naive. And Mauricio Pochettino, the PSG boss, he needed another plan. Uh, Jonathan, were you underwhelmed with how PSG played? I was, and and, and especially the, the the lack of supply to Mbappe. But I think, by, by the way, I think we've got to talk about Edison here as well. Edison's so monotonously good that we un, we we, not, we don't underrate him. We just we kind of take him for granted. And the threat of Mbappe was was really curbed by the his ability to just come outside the box at the speed that he does. Like I. I I think I can't remember what minute it was. But it was midway through the second half when Mbappe had that one, that one sort of perfect ball through to him, 
Uh, any other goalkeeper in the world would have would have would have had to try and stay in the box, but he was out so fast, cleared it before Mbappe could reach it. And I think when you've got a goalkeeper that like that, who basically can can the first third of the pitch is his, it makes it much harder for a, a striker from Mbappe's sort to 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 get the ball that, that those balls that he wants. Um, but Pochettino didn't. You're right. Have a have a a, a, a sort of second plan. I was surprised Icardi didn't come on. Um, Maybe Di Maria is 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 sort of finally sort of fading as a as a player, but for a team with all that attacking talent, um, they you know they scored from a set piece and seem to be basically reliant on on Neymar to to create something through trickery, but but not a lot else. Um, so yeah, it, 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 and they they kind of ended up in a kind of a flat four four two for the, a lot of the second half with the two strikers detached from the rest of the team. So I was surprised there, was, there wasn't there was a bit more to their performance. I've always thought, you know, Pochettino was going to go to, to Paris and almost revolutionise it and we would see that style that Tottenham had and it just hasn't materialised as yet. Um, Manchester City's performance, though, I, there is a part of me that feels they left something out there on the pitch. I know the Manchester City fans have been all over me on Twitter already for pointing out that they scored from a, a cross which went through a crowd and and deceived Kayla Navas at the back post and a free kick that really went through a wall it shouldn't have. And those were their two goals on the night. My point about that was, for all of you who are not just uh, Twitter warriors but also listen to the podcast, um, is that, as you've heard of, of me say many, many times, you know, if there was a forward, particularly for the last 10 or 15 minutes, a striker who was going to get into those areas in the six-yard box, I think Manchester City would have definitely scored another goal, particularly against 10 men. You know, I just felt there was an opportunity to go for the jugular and, and, and Pep Guardiola didn't for some reason. I just don't know why, because I think it will still be a close tie at the Etihad Stadium. And, um, you know, it's rare that you get that opportunity against 10 men. You know, did, you, did they really go for it when they had 10? I, I, I don't think they did. And that was that was disappointing, really, as far as I'm concerned. And also, you know, we leave the game, Manchester City have 1-2-1, and everyone starts saying, you know, the false nine and almost the double false nine. How brilliant from Pep Guardiola. Forgetting the fact they were awful in the first 45 minutes, De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva barely touched the ball. <laughs> And then in the second half, neither of them really got into those goal scoring um, parts of the, the penalty area. They needed someone else to, to when they had that dominance, really make it count. All I'm saying is I'm not saying Manchester City are going to go out, but they <laughs> might just rue. They might just rue not getting another goal there. I've had my say. Um, do you think they left anything out there, Gregor? I can see that point of view, and obviously th there were glaring moments throughout the game where a cross goes into the box and no one's in, no one's there. That happened in the cup final as well, actually. So you, there are moments where you go, yeah, yeah, you know, if a number nine's on the pitch, he's in that position. It's you know, his instinct. Yes, understand it. But also, the big thing that we you kind of have to accept from City second half display is it's born from the fact that they they are over there's overloads in all over the pitch apart from in the, that around the six yard box when the ball goes into you know having those <laughs> having those extra ten uh, those that, that extra number ten almost uh, it's it's so that was part of PSG were I thought PSG were good in the first half they were really kind of hustled Man City and, and yes Man City Pep Guardiola said they were a bit kind of he used the word shy and I think this game more than anything was one it was it was the result was more because of psychology than anything tactical 
I think City were a little bit inhibited in the first half and the second half they went no come on they showed a lot more belief and they went out and they did what they do best and that and just now you know we've talked about Pep tinkering too much and stuff just now Pep Manchester City at their best is when they have they play with a false a false nine and they have or or you know an extra number an extra number ten and they have overloads and they just pass the teams to death and they move it quickly and it's we saw in the second half as poor as PSG were it's so hard to keep it up to keep closing the spaces to keep closing them down to you know fitness plays a part in the end too it's exhausting to try and keep City at bay for ninety minutes so I think yeah yes the goals where they came from it was nothing really to do with their dominance of their play but it it's kind of it's it's just relentless it's relentless and any team to deal with that for 90 minutes is doing something pretty special I think so I think I think yes you can say they should have stuck a number nine on they might have got an extra goal particularly when there was 10 men but seeing City in the second half the way they the speed with which they played it's so hard to cope with that I couldn't imagine playing against that team I, I, I thought he had his best 11 players on well I, I thought I, I thought he had his best 11 players on form um, on the pitch which you know when you think about Pep quote unquote tinkering in previous Champions League stages then it tends to be him springing a surprise selection and I just thought he played safe with the selection I thought the the false nine or double false nine was just born out of necessity uh, these are his own form players at the moment. This is a system, as Gregor said, that's that's been serving him well, and he didn't he didn't change it. And that that's actually development on his part. He didn't feel the need to try and change for the opposition like he did against Lyon last year. We we saw the need for a striker clearly at certain times when that when the ball was going across the box. And actually, I think a more informed Raheem Sterling would have been on the pitch, and and he was he would have arrived in those six yard areas um, from from wide. But at the moment, that's City's best team, and um, there are short there are shortcomings. But if Phil Foden had um, used his right foot instead of his, his his left foot a couple of times, I think he'd have scored a couple of goals. And as Gregor said, it wears the opposition down. So the the, the benefit of it, I suppose, was seen um, over the ninety minutes. The fact that that, that that the system meant that that they were in great positions to press. PSG couldn't couldn't play out, and they were they were they were tired tired by the end but this time next year we will not see City playing with two false nines in, in, in a game like that we'll see a big striker up there and I mean big as in a big famous striker not necessarily a <laughs> Niall Quinn <laughs> <laughs> Andy Carroll with a shock move to Manchester City yeah love to see it um, let's quickly reflect on the game between Real Madrid uh, and Chelsea. I thought Real Madrid looked a little bit lost at times. They started the game with that back five, back three, whatever you want to call it. Um, did Thomas Tuchel really show Zinedine Zidane that the settled system that he has is is really important in the, the games of these magnitudes? Johnny? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it's like trying to play snooker against Stephen Hendry or something at his prime. I mean, Tuchel is such attritional but well-executed football, so hard to play against. You know, the pitch coverage that he gets, um, everywhere Real Madrid tried to, to play into, Chelsea just, they just had, it, had it covered. It's, it's amazing that Tuchel's been there for such a short period of time and the team looks so, just so sort of rigorously drilled and, and, and functioning. And yeah, tactically, the guy is absolutely, absolutely top-notch. And I actually would, 
you know, I'm going to go as far as to say I, I think Chelsea are favourites for the Champions League at the moment because I also fancy them against either of the the semi-finalists in the other tie. You know, City might be a better team overall, but I think um, in terms of having the antidote, Tuchel's probably probably got it. Um, maybe Real Madrid aren't great anymore. And maybe they squeezed as much out of that game as they they possibly could if they hadn't had Benzema on the pitch. You know, it it had been a very straightforward night for Chelsea. But that's down to how that's also down to how good Chelsea were. Gregor Timo Werner. He started the game. Uh, he he really should have scored. That's a story that we've told many many times this season. Do you think his manager can trust him? <laughs> um... Depends what your uh, what the trust has <laughs> been placed in, you know. If it's to score a goal from uh, four yards out, then no. But if it's to work his socks off and to stretch defences and to you know to put in a real shift and to continue getting into those positions, in fairness to him, um, then yes. But look, there's no there's no question that it's been a it's been a strange se- first season for him at Chelsea, and that you know he scored so many goals at, at uh, Leipzig, and he and he looks like he's not. He's not a kind of top class finisher. He's kind of snatching at things or just lacking that composure in those final moments. And that seems strange for a, a close to £50 million striker, as I say, who scored so many goals in previous seasons. But he is, you know, he, he, is, a, he is a threat stretching the defences. And that also causes, you know, create space for other players. And the biggest, the biggest thing, particularly in the first half for Chelsea, was, was the kind of those diagonal runs from right to left and behind the. Madrid's defence is all over the place. And there's one moment, did you see, I think it was, Aspil- was Aspilicueta or Pulisic that ran in from the right across and Mar- Marcelo followed him and he was like 10 yards behind the rest of uh, his, his defensive teammates. They were all over the place. And, you know, Werner can, can drop in to create space. He can make that run in behind. So I think the first half was quite surprising actually in how, you know, how much space and opportunity, even the goal. You know, Pulisic got in behind and I don't know what but Varane I think it was Nacho both of them seemed to run back to the goal line but he had so mm. much time and space it was bizarre um, and the second half became a bit more of the chess match that we sort of expected I think so back to Werner I mean no you can't rely on him to to score he'll need several chances it seems at the moment to, to do so because Karim Benzema basically showed us all yeah. why having a premium striker can get you out of so much trouble when you're not playing that great because, you know, it's a one-all draw that really on the balance of play, I don't think Real Madrid deserved. Even that, he, 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 the way he controlled the ball on his head, I think that was kind of, it looked like it just came to him really quickly, but he kind of, to cushion it and get the shot off, it was brilliant. And also just before that, he's kind of shot from nowhere uh, on his left foot that hit the post. So yeah, anything, anything positive for Real Madrid came from him and it was a, uh, you know, that was a supreme example of a number nine um, at the top of his game. And yes, again, for both these teams, you look at Chelsea and City and you think if if they had someone of his calibre, then the game might look a lot easier for them. But I think it's to the, to both Pep and Tuchel's credit that they're finding solutions and still they're still at this point and they're still in the driving seat in both ties. City a goal up then on Paris Saint-Germain. Two away goals for them as well. Chelsea got an away goal level at the moment. We've heard from Johnny already that he thinks Chelsea are the outright favourites. Johnny, are you convinced that both English clubs will make the final? I am, yeah. Um, I, 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 I think it's... Uh... Yeah, they, they've got to be favourites. And I was reflecting on this, that, you know, this would be two out of the last three years that there'd be 
um, two English finalists. And I don't want to I don't want to derail this and start going into the Super League because I'm sure we don't have time. But one of the things that that did strike me about the the European Super League idea was um, the Premier League is just growing in might and uh, in in importance so much. It did did make me wonder why. Um, just from a kind of nasty business point of view, the the big English clubs would would even seek to help their European competitors because the Premier League is just, as I say, growing in power and strength. And uh, if we do get two English clubs again in the in the final, maybe two English clubs in the in the in the Europa League final, it would just underline that. I'm still, actually, more confident about Chelsea. I still just think that you, you never know with PSG and with the, the two players they up front they have up front. Um, and City were so kind of transformed in the second half and we saw that PSG as I say I, I was I thought PSG were really good in the first half or much of the first half anyway particularly in the way that they pressed City and think of the minutes piece so I think I would still be more confident with Chelsea but I think it looks increasingly like it'll be both of them in the final loads for us to look forward to in terms of the Champions League uh, over the coming week those second legs next week of course um, up next we're going to be talking about Liverpool there's a huge game for them this weekend and what's the strangest excuse for missing a game as well remember though if you're enjoying the podcast give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from and also make sure you're subscribed to the Times and the Sunday Times right now you can get it across all of your devices and if you sign up today you'll get yourself one month free just go online search the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get started small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because rust-oleum's new custom spray five and one gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks crannies edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com You're listening to The Game Podcast with myself, Hugh Wilsoncroft, alongside Gregor Robertson and Jonathan Northcroft. Sunday afternoon sees Liverpool visit Manchester United in a huge game in the Premier League. Massive, most importantly, for Liverpool's Champions League hopes. Defeat at Old Trafford could see them go seven points behind the top four if Chelsea can beat Fulham. Now, with four games after that point, it could end up virtually insurmountable if they are beaten. And they probably go into the game as underdogs, don't they, Johnny? If they fail to make it, do you think there will be major changes at the club? Uh, I don't think there'll be major changes because um, of of how much trust there is in Jurgen Klopp and maybe financial reasons as well. Um, Liverpool's accounts came out this week and like all clubs, they've been affected by by COVID. Um, but of course, unlike some clubs, they, they, they sort of have a model where they 
they need to sort of make their own money to a certain extent in transfer. Certainly over the last five, six years, you know, part of the business plan has been Michael Edwards' ability to sell players. And, and that to, to sort of died off last year. Um, and, and looking at the kind of hole in the finances, they would they would struggle, you'd think, to make massive signings unless they were able to to sell a couple. And I don't think there's anybody, you know, when Aldam will go on a free, but I don't think there's there's anybody, you know, there's not another Philip Coutinho that they're they're ready to sell. So I think I think we've got a settled squad, and if Jurgen Klopp wants to be there, um, he he will be there. But um, it it it's tough. It's 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 amazing how quickly football changes. You know, a year ago we were talking about Liverpool maybe building a dynasty, and now you're looking at a scenario where you know certain players are, are maybe aging a little bit in the front line. I think there's a worry whether Firmino's kind of lack of goals and assists has started to become a bit chronic. You know, he still presses, but it's been a couple of years since he was really productive and fans will be hoping that Sadio Mane's bad season's just a blip. So it's beginning to look like a team that does need a bit of a change. Um, and yet there's probably not a huge amount of money to to to, to affect that change. And then you're looking at the, the, the rise of Man City and behind them Chelsea so things have changed very quickly for Liverpool slightly worrying times and not being in the Champions League would be um, a further blow to that and it is you're right I think you said Hugh in the intro to this that it's a bigger game for them than Liverpool, than Man United and I, I, I totally agree with, with that for United it's um, it's it's as much about the, 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 the pride of that fixture and anything else but for Liverpool winning is just a necessity Gregor, do you think there will be major changes if they miss out on the Champions League? Is it even possible to do that, as Johnny's pointed out? No, I don't think there'll be major changes at all. Um, I think Johnny summed up really. I think Jurgen Klopp is still in a you know position of huge strength, um, and financially, it's going to be it's going to be difficult for every club really this summer. And the thing about all the you know we're seeing all the accounts coming out just now is that it doesn't even cover you know, it covers like a quarter of the season that was affected by the pandemic and we're still seeing these huge losses. The, the pain is still to come and like in, in the certainly being revealed in accounts. So yeah, I think I can't see there being much, much in the way of changes either way. And if you're looking at you know, Liverpool's chances, if they don't win this game, yeah, the only thing you can say in their favour is that after that, they've Southampton and Palace at home and West Brom and Burnley away, both of whom probably won't have much to play for. Um, Chelsea, Chelsea's still got Man City, Arsenal and Leicester. Um, and Leicester have got United, Chelsea and Tottenham. So, you know, there is a little bit of hope in terms of the fixtures that the two the two teams have. But if if if, if Liverpool lose this and, and Leicester win, then you're looking at, I think that's 11 points. And I think that's it. And I don't think they're going to catch Chelsea. This, you know, the only thing is Chelsea have got still got the, the the second leg of the Champions League to focus on and they've got a tougher run in but I, I think the other thing you have to see is Liverpool aren't they're still not convincing anyone you know the game against Newcastle you know, you're saying they missed a lot of chances so did Newcastle um, so you keep looking and thinking Liverpool have got to surely turn a corner but the, the, the corner is not being turned it doesn't matter who they're playing at the moment they aren't looking convincing. Does Jurgen Klopp get away with it? With the injuries to Van Dijk and Gomez and the difficulties they've had during the season, the way that they've played without them? I think he gets away with it in the sense he's got so much credit in the bank that he's allowed a kind of off-season, as it were. I don't think he gets away with it in, in that you could just say 
you know, he's made lots of brilliant decisions and none of it's been his fault. I, I think for a club, um, they haven't had a great season. I think, you know, I mentioned Michael Edwards, um, who's been a genius in, in terms of managing the, the the recruitment side of things. But I think they made a mistake. I might have said this in an earlier pod. I think he's he has made the planning has been, has been mistaken in that uh, a group of players has slightly come to the end of a cycle um, ages maybe caught up with a couple and I think they'd have seen this coming but but would have you know probably misjudged it by six months um so you know for example someone like Jota who was I think bought you know to kind of bleed in over this season and then maybe be a big player for future seasons he's actually looked essential they missed him when he's been injured because you know the, the planning wasn't there they kind of needed him here and now as I said the front three haven't haven't quite been what they were and Klopp's made um some some decisions that, that that you know he should be held to account for. Name you know mo- probably most of all getting it wrong when Van Dyke was injured and not just playing his two centre halves. I know this is all captain hindsight stuff, but you know it's his job, football manager's job, to try and um, see the things that we we maybe don't see um, or see them first. So there's mistakes there. Maybe the tone's been wrong at Liverpool season. There's been a sort of sense of you know the Van Dyke injury just put them on on the defensive in terms of the messaging coming out, it seemed to emotionally affect them far too much. And again, that's down to a coach to, to kind of try and project the mood of a club. So I, I think there's a number of, I, I know Jurgen Klopp has obviously had personal, you know, tragedies and, and, and issues. So I'm, I don't want to judge him too hard, too harshly as a person, but for a variety of, of reasons, Liverpool could have, could have done things slightly better this year. But they're an intelligent club that I'm sure will take stock of all these things and, and try and do better next year. It's funny you, you raised that point. It was my next question. It has it has been an emotional year for Jurgen Klopp, as you point out. But it is time for both him and the club maybe to take stock of how things are. Um, on Jurgen Klopp, Gregor, did you, I know you don't know him personally, but can you imagine what he will want next as a football manager? Would it be pastures new uh, if there's no chance of bringing in, you know, more elite players to the club? Um, maybe he'll just take stock at personally and say, given the things that have happened in his personal life and the amount of emotional energy he expends as a manager and with Liverpool in particular over the past few years, that it, then he might need time to, to have a break and regenerate himself. My instinct till that is no. <laughs> Sorry, I think <laughs> as much as much as a lot of people would hope that you know supporters of other clubs in particular would hope that that may be the case. I don't think so. I think you know there's a huge connection being built there. Um, I still think you will believe deep down that with you know a little bit more fort a bit better fortune next season and the return of players to fitness, it, it won't even be necessarily crucial for them to to go out and buy three elite players as you're as you're talking about and you know the finances won't allow him to do that probably so I think you know the return of players will be a kind of boost enough to see Liverpool certainly improve dramatically on this season but there are question marks undoubtedly I think you know Firmino um, Manny as well you know they've, they've undoubtedly dipped this season just getting that front three back to to kind of firing at his very best, whether that's going to happen actually, that, that that's that, that undoubtedly has to be a question mark around that now. Um, and even you know, when Van Dyke returns, you're still relying on 
Matip and Gomez, both of whom are injury prone. That was their biggest, you know, Johnny was talking about what mistakes they made. That was their biggest mistake. They let Lovren go, which was a good decision in my book, but you had to replace them with somebody and they didn't do so. And, you know, with the knowledge that both Gomez and Matip have been injury prone in the past. And then when they lost Van Dijk as well, we've seen the results essentially. Looking ahead to the game then this weekend at Old Trafford, uh, as we say, Manchester United, probably the favourites. This game is usually woeful. There was a 3-2 in the FA Cup, though, earlier this season. Um, I wonder, given Liverpool's need to win the game, whether it might be more open, Jonathan, this time around, and we might see a lot of goals. Oh, I hope so, Hugh. You, 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 know, you used the word woeful, though. I, mean, I was thinking about this. These, these games are just... I don't know, comparing them to 10 years ago and, and people who know the fixture better, you know, could go back a lot further than that, but they've they've been poor for a long time. Um, and surely this one will be better. We've seen some, I think seven of the last 10 have been draws, you know, four nil-nils in there. Uh, surely this one will be, will be, will be better because you feel it can't be worse than a lot of those games. But United look really tired I don't know that you're saying that they're favourites, but the last few games they've just seemed to have hit the wall for me, um, and they've got a tough, tough um, assignment in Rome um, to come back from. So I actually would put Liverpool favourites. I think they'll have much more energy for this match and and a much greater need. I think I think United will will get some nice Solskjaer ball of them just sitting in um, deep and 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 trying to bring a few counters and it'll be down to Liverpool to to try and break them down but I, th- I think Liverpool will have the initiative in this match It's massively important for Manchester United I think and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer that competition and I wonder whether there might be some players rested for the game against Liverpool as well I know for pride purposes Ole Gunnar Solskjaer won't want to lose that game but they, 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 they do always look pretty tired after those Thursday nights so again I'm not expecting it to be a classic by any stretch of the imagination I just think Liverpool might go for it they've had more of the rest and you know we, we might see in a way a way victory do you think a point's enough by the way Jonathan for, for Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool uh, a point keeps them in it um, but no because of um, you know what Gregor was saying about Chelsea don't see I, I think they'll I think they'll be fine um, and two big wins in a row for Leicester if Leicester can win on Friday night then they really are in a strong position and, and would leave Liverpool needing to, I think, needing to win, realistically. Yeah, I think I, I, I think a point is only OK if the others start to stumble. Uh, we'll review that all on the game podcast on Monday. Hopefully, from for me at least, it's a decent game for Manchester United. I'll be off, uh, by the way, watching their game in the Europa League tonight. So hopefully, again, that goes well. Um, very biased on this podcast, by the way. But finally, <laughs> let's just reflect on what we mentioned a little bit earlier on. Um, what a strange story. Uh, what a way to possibly miss a game. Real Madrid defender Marcelo could miss the Champions League semi-final second leg because he's been called up as a polling station monitor during their local elections. It means that he might not be allowed to travel to London. Gregor, I'm going to start with you. You must have heard over your course of time in the game and otherwise plenty of odd reasons why players have missed games, including maybe yourself. Oh, not myself. I mean, obviously, I was an absolute consummate pro. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's been some very, very strangely timed illnesses and things like that. Also, some really blatant around uh, the festive period kind of flying elbows and red cards and things like that. (laughs) But the one that always always leaps to my mind is a a former teammate in the Scotland 21s. You'll know this one. Kirk Broadfoot 
with the exploding egg. He was poaching an egg in the microwave, <laughs> and uh, and it exploded in his face, and like. And uh, <laughs> I think it was like scalding water on his cheek and pot- potentially even some glass in his eye. It was pretty serious. Like you know, everyone, it was front page in the Scottish Sun, I think. Exploding egg <laughs> takes out Graham Roger. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, that always came to my mind. And I thought the one that also leaped to my mind as well, that Johnny might remember more than anything, this is when a whole team doesn't play, was uh, Scotland against Estonia in 96. Yeah. When so I think there was a World Cup qualifier and uh, they were supposed to play in Estonia in a, a nighttime game and Craig Brown complained about the floodlights because I think they were temporary floodlights and he said you know these aren't good enough so the UEFA moved the game to an afternoon kickoff and Estonia were like an uproar about this and he just didn't turn up so the game kicked off and. It was a ghost. It's called gone down history as the ghost game, and uh, there was only one team on the pitch. So the game kicked off, and then three seconds later, it was the referee booth, booth <laughs> abandoned the match. Greg, who was it? Who was it that celebrated? Was it Darren Jackson or something? Celebrated after after three seconds when Scotland were declared winners. There was he put his hands up with the centre circle. Maybe John Collins, yeah, one of them. Yeah, but that was that came to mind. They had to replay it, of course. But at the time, it was thought that was going to be a you know three points in the bag, valuable three points, rare three points in the bag for Scotland. Um, so yeah, a team that a whole team that didn't turn up because. They were angry about the game being moved in after the kickoff. <laughs> Protests, yeah. Jonathan, can you remember any good ones? Well, I mean, I mean, there was the there's Philip Mex's, wasn't it, Mister Champions League game against Celtic because he uh, it was put down as an eye injury, but it turned out he'd been on the sunbed and um, uh, hadn't hadn't put his sort of sunglasses on, so he'd actually managed to sort of singe his retina or something like that, and it put him put him out for the game. <laughs> Um, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a sad one, really, but I, the one that actually just came straight to my mind when I saw this question was one of Aberdeen's managers, Steve Patterson, who had uh, was battling problems with alcohol, and he actually managed to sleep in through a, a football match. You know, he, I think he was out till 7am in, in, in the city centre in Aberdeen and managed to, I think he woke up at like, you know, quarter past two and, uh, oh, something I was supposed to do today. Oh, my goodness. Be it Pataudry, you know, there was a game wow. and um, the club had to put it down as a as a stomach upset. The problem was that so many people had seen him carousing in Aberdeen City Centre the night before that they didn't didn't really get away with it. Um, I mean, I, I missed a game once in Newcastle when <clears throat> um, I was working for Scotland on Sunday and they had a, a tradition of, um, you know, trying to cover English football as well. It's my first few months in the job so they, they sent me down to Newcastle and I just didn't have any idea how far Newcastle really was from Glasgow by road so <laughs> it was about 80 miles that'd be about an hour and a half um, and I took the office car started um, started driving realised I was never going to make it floored it um, uh, managed to basically burn out the clutch going across the A69 or whatever it is <laughs> which meant I then had to call the AA out and the first half of the game was taking place while uh, I was in the, the front of this um, AA vehicle. But the guy put it on the radio, so I was able to basically just nick all the description from the radio commentary. And I missed a goal, but I, 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 the commentator described it very well for me. And it went in my match report. And 
Nobody was ever the wiser. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. So you still managed to get it done. Oh, oh yeah. there you go. And the Newcastle fans missed you as well on that day. I'm sure there was up for um, Jonathan Northcroft, Gregor Robertson, thank you so much for being with me for the past hour or so, just short maybe. And Ian Hawkey a little bit earlier on as well. And thank you for listening too. We'll be back on Monday. But remember, if you enjoy the podcast, give us a review, a good one, five stars possibly. You know, it's up to you. But wherever you get your podcast from. And remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times right now across all of your devices if you sign up today you'll get yourself one month free just go online search the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get started we'll see you on monday small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.